0: Welcome to the See Me Now special edition podcast, where we interview some of the most interesting people in Western Colorado. I'm Kelsey Coleman with my co-host, David Ludlam. We're here today with Colorado Mesa University Assistant Professor of History, Tim Weingard. Welcome to the show.
1: Thank you. Yeah, thanks for being here. I want to talk right (laughs) uh, to the mosquito book, but maybe in a different way. And for, I don't know if all the listeners know, but you had a wildly successful book um, last year. And um, I know that people have been asking you about the mosquito, but I wanted to ask you about what was it like for you as an academic to go from, you know, writing books that maybe you were interested in, but that weren't necessarily commercial to a book that became globally recognized. And what did that look like for you personally?
2: Uh, It's a great question. So the mosquito book is my fifth book. Um, So everyone kind of assumes it's the first book I wrote and that's not true. I wrote four books before that were, you know, more academic in nature and not, um, you know, written in a more narrative style like the mosquito for the general audience. So, I mean, I I do, I write books because it's a hobby and I enjoy it and and I love it and I'm kind of thankful to have a job that's, that's also my hobby. And um, so I, Obviously, my other books were published by university presses in this this last, The Mosquito was published um, by Penguin Random House, which is obviously commercial press, and it was published in uh, 15 languages worldwide. Um, I didn't really know what to expect, to be quite honest, because it was all so new to me from from the get go. But it debuted on the New York Times bestseller list, in the LA Times bestseller list, in the Globe and Mail bestseller list in Canada. And um,
1: but it, commercial success wasn't necessarily your goal, even in writing this book. It was it was the top, ta- the subject, the theme. The right. Ta- I do it just because the subject was fascinating, and the more I
2: researched, the more I, I just was. It was an amazing story. How. This tiny little creature uh, punched way above her weight class and has essentially dictated a lot of of human history and the evolution of um, of us as, as as a species. But history and culture and religion and, and the, the the whole kit and caboodle of our history. So um, it was, I mean, it was flattering and humbling and it was amazing, but it was also very overwhelming from um, from a personal standpoint. I, I just didn't expect the i guess intrusiveness but just the amount of media attention was was overwhelming in doing you know 20 interviews one day and 17 the next and then flying all over to be on NBC and CBS and and all everything that came with it I'm a small town canadian boy so I I wanted to be famous for playing hockey to be quite honest not, not for for this but again I'm not um, I'm thrilled that it happened, so I'm not saying I I wasn't thrilled. It was amazing. Um, But at the same time, everybody, especially with social media, everybody has an opinion and everybody's an expert and everyone you know, you could tell they didn't even read the book and were taking potshots at you and calling me things like I was a racist or homophobic or absolutely ridiculous things when everybody knows me. that That's the complete opposite of of, of what I am and what I promote. So it's just strange in a, a world that's driven by social media where everybody gets to have an opinion, whether it's valid or not, but I can put it on social media. So therefore, it's a, it's a right opinion. And some of the just crapola out there. I had to stop reading it. It it just, it, it was a bit stressful for, for for the first few months. So, um, maybe with my next one, if it gets to be a bestseller, I'll be, I won't have any of that. So here's, here's hoping.
0: (laughs) Yeah, I, I think I mean it didn't happen overnight but it seems that you know one day you're in the classroom with your students and the next you're you know on a plane flying to New York and all over the place and and how you know how did how was that for like this like your family your 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 regular routine that you have to just completely everything is different the next day
2: um My family actually kind of grounded me, which was a good thing. Um, And uh, my favorite poem is is Rudyard Kipling's If, and I just kind of remembered, and my dad actually would call and and repeat these lines in the phone. Just remember this, Tim, remember this. Um, if uh, If you can dream and not make dreams your master, if you can think and not make thoughts your aim, if you can meet with triumph and disaster and treat those two imposters just the same. So essentially don't get high with the highs and low with the lows there's a balance to the force and and that's where you need to be and and his advice is always um, the sage counsel is always kind of brings me back down but um, I always just tell a story of when it got to the point where it was you know fairly overwhelming and everybody kind of wants a piece of you in a way uh my wife said yeah I don't care about all this fame and all these accolades I know you as the guy who farts in the dog's face and then <laughs> lasts for 5 minutes afterwards that is definitely <laughs> keeping so, you grounded um
1: did I just hear you you were just reading kipling yeah and did I hear you make a star wars reference when you said the force i'm sure i'm a huge I'm a, a star wars guy? I'm a
2: huge star wars fan That's <laughs> oh. all my stu- anybody who knows me and my students i actually right now have a student one of my He's keeping a tally of how many Star Wars references uh, that I make. Uh, Do you I have think, figurines and the whole deal? Oh, I got all my original toys from when I was oh. a kid. Uh, Wait, are you
0: trying? Are you like trying to put these? these phrases and words out there or, or is it just like a part of your natural vocabulary? It's just kind of,
1: well, uh, as I, say, I, am a Je- <laughs> I am a Jedi, so I just speak Star Wars. Well, it, um, it, well in, all, in all seriousness, I mean, Star Wars changed culture and it says a lot about good and evil. And or do you, I mean, is, it some, is there something in Star Wars that you do bring to the classroom that's substantive and that, I mean, Star Wars captures a lot about the, the forces that work in the world or whatever. Is, it, is there something you really do like about it that way? I just think
2: that the, the message is, is an important it's a humanistic i joke that i'm a jedi but i'm just a humanist and and just be a kind person treat everybody equally um and and that like that's it that's absolute treat everybody equally and with respect i you don't really need to say anything more than that because it has nothing to do with ethnicity or creed or culture or who people love and who people choose to love or not love that that's that's who cares? Who's everybody's, your favorite everybody's, everybody's Who's your favorite a, a character being. in Star Wars. Who's, Who's my your, favorite yeah. character? I'm obviously Yoda. Um on our mantle, yeah. you know, people put different stuff on their mantle above the fireplace. We just have
1: uh a statue of Yoda. That's it. What um, about you Kelsey? Who's your favorite character? <laughs>
0: I, I have can't Have you seen all the Star Wars? No, I have not. You have not seen I've all seen horror. one of the movies. This interview is over. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Do you notice why I'm sitting here I'm just, quietly? I have no, no input about this. But the one I did watch, I can't tell you which one it was, but I watched it on the big screen, before, you know, pre-COVID, and I was really into it. I liked it. I just don't, I don't know. I just haven't seen the other ones.
1: Professor one. Weingart, you need to assign some... Movie. Some I want to teach take. a milestone class on, <laughs> on like
2: Star Wars, like the cultural influence of Star Wars. Because you think if Disney can build this Star Wars galaxy knowing that they're going to make billions of dollars off of it, there has to be tons of Star Wars nerds like me running around. I mean, it has, as, as you said, David, it has profoundly affected modern culture. I mean, it really has, like no other kind of movie franchise or even media or, or art in that way um, because there's people like me, I'm born in 77, so I'm a, like, really, I'm the Star Wars generation and and it's kind of, it's not even a joke in our house, it's just, that's how we talk <laughs> <laughs> it's just a way of you, life it's
1: and you, just part of what we are do you do an impression i hope not no no okay, impression. but i mean <laughs> it,
2: it, it, my parents are the same my sisters it's this is what we we are i grew up like that and i still do it with my own family and people laugh but um it is just it's just the way it is and i think some of the
1: lessons and concepts are are brilliant a lot of it's borrowed from buddhism but um still brilliant a lot of our, our CMU now listeners can't see, but our audio engineer Colin was over here nodding his head as you're talking about Star Wars. So <laughs> <laughs> thumbs up. So I'm okay, everybody's listening. A milestone class on the, the cultural influence of Star Wars. Okay, so we talked about we talked about the book in terms of what your personal journey was like, and then um, we've talked about Star Wars. But <laughs> I, are you still getting attention for the book? And like, what do you have? Any other projects coming up that are interesting? Or,
2: um. So yeah, the, obviously the book. It's been out for, what, a year and a half now-ish. Um, the media attention is, is tapered off a little bit. I still do, um, frequently do interviews, um, especially because the book's coming out in different languages at different times. So it's a bit staggered with the different languages. So every time it's released in, say, Thai or Hebrew or Polish or whatever it is, um, then another kind of round of interviews comes for that specific country or that language. Um, And still some, obviously, in in English. Um, So, yeah, it's tapered off, but it's still still kind of alive and well. Um, My next book actually just got a. I'm allowed to say this, too, which is nice. A new contract with with Penguin, uh, Random House, the same publisher as The Mosquito, um, for a book on essentially the influence of the horse on human culture, human history, whether that's trade, travel, migration, warfare, uh, the spread of the Indo-European language group. Uh, there's a whole, whole bunch of stuff that goes in there. So that's the next book.
1: Mosquitoes to horses, <laughs>
0: <laughs> and you know you. So you're obviously this history professor. You are a writer, but you you're you're really well rounded and pretty dynamic in your hobbies and what you do. You mentioned you wanted to be famous for hockey, and you're you're still heavily involved in hockey.
2: Uh, we all. I'm, a, I, I'm Canadian. I grew up in Canada. Obviously, had a rink in my backyard that my dad made every year. I learned how to skate. Right about the same time I learned how to walk, and that's not actually not a joke. There's pictures of me in diapers. Um, that's it, just diapers and skates on the backyard <laughs> rink, bombing around. Not cold at um, all. Yeah, not, <laughs> Well, I see everybody here. It's like 58 people got winter coats on. I'm walking around in like no shirt out here. It's like beautiful. Um, but so you
1: make up for the Star Wars nerd stuff with hockey. With hockey. So
2: <laughs> I, I mean, I played at a really high level of junior hockey back home in Canada, and then I had to. I got shoulder surgery, but. Um, so I just I love I mean like most Canadians I love hockey and I'm thrilled that I got to start a, a hockey team here at CMU and and coach start it and be the coach uh, ever since and it's uh, Division three and I mean that in itself is is amazing and I just it, it's just such an amazing experience for me to be able to do that and and have that as part of my I guess CMU experience outside the classroom is. Is brilliant, and I'm very thankful for that. For that
1: that opportunity. Is there something about hockey beyond just the fact that Canada's cold that makes it a special sport for Canadians? What is what is it? Why do they like it so much? Well, I think we're not even still. There's only about 34 million of us, so we're not really
2: the best in the world at anything because we don't have a very big population. So when you can be a very small country and a small population, well, we're a massive country, but small population and be the best in the world, that's something I suppose, then you cling to that. Um, uh, I mean, I guess a lot of actors and musicians are Canadian too, but you can keep Bieber and Nickelback. We don't want them back. (laughs) Uh, We'll take Shania Twain back though. Like bring her, please. Let's have Shania back. We'll take Shania. Um,
0: (laughs) Yeah. You know, when I, when I first moved here, I actually went to, um, one of the first things I did when I moved here was go to one of the CMU hockey games. And I have to say, like, I, I didn't grow up with hockey, but watching it was really fun. And like, kind of, you know, there's like these battles happening on these, on the ice and, and going ice skating, if anyone's ever been ice skating, it's not, it's not so easy, you know? And so to actually be bouncing around, bumping into people, it's, it's a, it's a talented thing
2: when it's it's such a different game for that reason you essentially have blades strapped onto your feet i mean most other games basketball baseball football you're on your feet right so you're adding a whole new dimension to a sport when you're on ice wearing skates and when you look at these players and obviously myself when i was younger not anymore uh, but to be able to move with that agility and that speed is amazing at the same time controlling a puck in a full contact sport uh, it is there's no other sport like it and in my opinion that's why it's the best sport in the world it's, it's physical it's fast and it uh you have to be it's obviously the athleticism is
1: amazing um, to be able to do all that at top speed on skates as a history guy when the u.s beat the russians that year during the cold war what was, do you remember that in terms of like, where did Canada fall Now that? Were they as happy as we were? Did it mean something from a historical standpoint for Canadians? Was it, did what did it even make the radar? Like what? that was one of the most famous moments in hockey history, right?
2: Yeah. So the 1980 Olympics and um, you just have to remember at that time, like now again, um, professional hockey players weren't allowed to play for Olympic teams. So, Basically, at that time, 95% of the NHL was Canadian, so none of those guys were allowed to, to, to play, plus all the like semi-pro leagues, they're considered professionals. So, uh, it, I mean, I was only three, uh, so I don't remember it personally, but... Um, for us, it was called the Summit Series in 1972 when Canada played Russia in just a straight-up tournament. It was the Red Army team versus Canada, uh, and it was an eight-game series, four games in Toronto, uh, and four games in Moscow. And so for us, we won in the last game. In over, <laughs> with like so you had your own version six, of that. Paul Henderson oh, okay. scored. I mean, it's... It, it's the most famous sporting event in Canadian history. Everyone knows Paul Henderson's goal in 1972 um, to win that series against against the the Russians um, or the Soviets, I guess technically. But so we have our own own version, version of that. Of okay. Yeah.
1: Okay.
0: I think anyone who knows you or has spoken with you knows that you're obviously very passionate about history. You've dedicated your whole life to it. What What is it about historical events that that really gets you, that intrigues you?
2: I think it started as a, as a kid. My dad's an emergency doctor back home, but he probably should have been a historian. Uh, my great-grandfather fought in the First and Second World Wars for Canada, and my grandpa- uh, his son my grandpa fought in the second world war so when I was a little kid I'd sit I got to meet my great-grandpa and grandma she died when I was 21 these are my great-grandparents not my grandparents um and he died when I was 11 so I got to sit on his lap and he would tell me he, he served he joined the he fought in the first world war when he was 15 years old so that's a great 10 he lied about his age and so listening to their stories about the First and Second World War firsthand from your own family members, um, I don't know what it was, but that just, I'm almost going to start crying now, that resonated with me um, so much as a, as a little kid and the respect and kind of reverence I had for for these two men that, you know, when they spoke about it so humbly and, and so stoically that... That's that is what got me interested in history, like bar none. Was was military history of my own family, um, and then specialized in military history in my you know my my masters and in, in my PhD. So go ahead, Kelsey. Oh
0: no, I, I'm just thinking how you know you, you you're saying how your great grandparents and your grandparents influenced you with. The, this this history aspect, but then you also went into the military in Canada, correct?
2: Yeah. And again, it was the same just growing up. I can't remember being able to think and not wanting to <laughs> to, to join the army. It was something that again, because of the influence of my great grandpa and my grandpa um, and other family members too, who served in, in the Canadian military um, and in the U.S. military, actually I had two cousins who served in Vietnam uh, who were Canadian and Join the U.S. military to, to to go to war, essentially. Um, so it was something I wanted to do my entire life, and my parents wouldn't let me until I got my undergrad degree. They said, "When you get your undergrad degree, you can do whatever the hell you want." So I joined the so I joined the <laughs> army. Uh, so, but it wasn't a surprise. Obviously, it was something that I had had wanted to do since I can remember. Um, and part of that was academia as well. I kind of figured if you're going to be a historian, going to be a, a military historian, you should probably um, understand how it 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 really works on the ground, and not not just Abstractly, through books. Yeah. Books are fine, and I love books. Um, and I mean, Alexander the Great is is one of my best friends, um, but you know, real life kind of those experiences certainly put a different dimension to being able to write about it or research.
1: Um, And when you're reading, things kind of make more sense because you've lived that uh, in a way. So you're a a military historian who's been in the military. You're a a hockey coach that's played hockey. Um, Do you think there's more room for that practitioner slash academic hybrid in academia? Do we need more of that so that there's that abstract experience, but also real world experience that makes for a better teacher, for a better um mentor of students? Um I'm putting you uh, on the spot, but it's yeah, it's I an don't interesting think there's question.
2: Maybe a right or wrong answer to that. I think everybody is who they are and, and brings to the table their own experiences and everybody's experiences are unique. Mine are unique for me, but certainly I learned from other people's experience and still learn from other people's experiences um that i never got to do and i can learn in a way vicariously through them um so i think it's it's just we never stop learning and and as socrates said i know i'm the smartest person in the world because i know i know nothing uh and he's right so i think it's the continuation or the curiosity of life and it's sometimes sad to see people who retire and get older and lose that curiosity in life and that's what makes us human that that, that's it's a brilliant thing about our species is that we're so curious and that's why we do what we do what's beyond that hill you know what's beyond that star what's on mars um and that goes across academic fields i think i'm just blessed that my parents raised me to be multi-dimensional and and i have just I think an innate passion for learning and it doesn't matter what it is it doesn't matter if I'm an expert at it or not I just want to know I just want to learn and I'm a you know I'm a terrible artist but I still try to draw and I mean my stick figures are fantastic and that's as far as that's about as far as I can get <laughs>
0: I love that you said that because I was walking on campus earlier today and I saw a student just sitting on this bench kind of playing this little handheld, uh, drum. So I stopped and I was asking him about it and he went on to say, you know, I was like, Oh, is this your passion? And he went on to say, no, I'm, I'm a generalist. I just like to learn all different things. He's like, I just started this and I'll be onto something new in six months. So I like that you brought that up.
1: Yeah. I want to take you to the task on something. You said that you're not an artist, but you're a musician. That's an artist, right? How did you get into music? And what do, do you use that as just a personal uh, hobby? Or have you, do you play in a band? Or how do you use your music? What do you play? And what do you do?
2: Uh, well, again, I go back to my parents. I grew up in a very musical household. Um, my parents and my uncles and aunts, what I remember as a kid, they'd all get together and, you know, my dad would play the guitar and they'd all sing Peter, Paul, and Mary in, like, three-part harmony. And it was actually it was actually very good. So my dad plays guitar and, and sings. And so I grew up just listening and playing or singing with my dad a lot of Beatles stuff, a lot of Gordon Lightfoot stuff, um, like Crosby, Stills, Nash, and Young, so that kind of 60s folk folk music, and then I was forced to take piano lessons as a kid, and I hated it, but I'm so (laughs) glad that they made me because I just picked up the guitar and kind of taught myself how to play and, and sing, and so I think originally I did it just... Because it was an outlet for emotion, and I think that's what a lot of art is. You don't have to be good at it or bad at it. it. It's 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 an expression of your emotion, and and I think it helped, especially in the teenage years, and get some of that angst out, and you know, um, just sing. And I mostly did it just by myself, and then obviously practiced and practiced and practiced, and got better. And then in university, I'd play at the the bars and the pubs, and my you know where I went to school, and. Now I just kind of do it again to, for an emotional stress relief. I just kind of go upstairs and close the door and, and just play for a half an hour or an hour. But I think
1: I like it, your message about you don't have to be good at an art to do it. You don't have to be a good painter to paint, so to speak. Right. Yeah. I think it's, it's for whatever purpose it serves for you.
2: And again, I go to the gym. I'm not trying to set any world records in the gym here. I work out for Five or six times a week. It's for me. It's a lot. I just get venom out. It's a stress relief for me, and it helps me keep in shape. Obviously, but it's for whatever it it, it gives you, and you don't have to do it for anybody else other than yourself. If it helps you, you know, get some stress out or or you know, expend your emotions. Um, but I think about it as I'm you know writing my own songs. I wrote tons of poetry. Um, And I look at it in a way, even when I write my books, it is an art form. And I think about it like that. And and I think about writing books. And when you read those books that you really like, it's because of how they're written and how the word choice and the word play. So in a way, words themselves are an art form. And I'm fascinated. And I love just kind of finding different combinations to to words that kind of paint that picture. And I think that Mosquito book is why part of the reason it was so popular or successful is it's accessible the way it's written but it's also written more lyrically in a way and actually some of the reviewers even said that it kind of reads like a a lyrical a long epic poem if you will um so I'm the next you know Homer I'm the next Greek ancient Greek right I'm Homer Uh, that's
1: bold that's bold no I'm kidding I'm kidding obviously I just love what I do so Tim, we were talking earlier about Star Wars. I wanted to bring up something that a, a current event, I don't want to talk about the event itself, but this, this idea, some people call it cancel culture. I don't know if that's the best term or not, but this idea that um, there's a societal debate around free speech and what's acceptable and what's not. And particularly that's hit hard on campuses. You know, there's a lot of comedians who, who f- frankly will not do college campuses anymore. As an academic. I wondered if you at, thinking of the Star Wars thing as the example, but where are you at with, you know, freedom of speech and expression? CMU's Board of Trustees just passed a new freedom of, of speech uh, tolerance, you know, policy. Got any general thoughts on that? Um, I think it's a it's a tough question and it's a tough
2: one, and I think all. Countries are grappling with that, you know, democratic countries, Australia, Canada, I know are having issues with it on like the social medias, Facebook in Canada and Australia are kind of debating some new laws about that. Um, and obviously the United States too. So I think it is, it is a very tough conundrum of what constitutes free speech and how far the limits to free speech are. And then what presents, you know, in the U S terms, a clear and present danger to society. The way I look at a lot of that in general, just as a human being, and people can differ you know, in their opinions and certainly disagree, but my opinion is I don't care what you do is, or believe or say as long as you don't hurt somebody else. You have every right to do whatever you want, but when it hurts or infringes on somebody else's freedoms, you no longer have that right. And maybe that's very Canadian of me. Um, <laughs> hurt,
1: hurt? And do you mean hurt? Is that a physical thing? Well, or is that no, an because thing? Is demeaning a, can
2: hurt. Uh, d- being demeaning to somebody through words is just as bad. It's abuse. It's just as bad. So whether it's racism, homophobia, all of that stuff, you, I don't—I mean, it, it's a very— blurred gray area and but at the same time what gives you the right to demean and be rude and hurtful to other people that's not right well it's my free speech well maybe but it's not Um, you're inciting hatred and at some point if we want to move forward as a as a society and a global village i don't think hatred in any form can be tolerated against any human being it's wrong it is wrong, and I and I think it's. People say, "Well, there's no, you know, there is a wrong or right here." Being hateful to another human being is wrong. It's always wrong, and that's kind of how. Maybe that's utopic, and I have rose colored glasses on, and maybe that's my socialist Canadian attitude coming out. But um, I think if you want to call it cancel culture, or you want to flip it on its head and call it inclusion culture, I mean, call it what you want. But at some point
1: being hateful is wrong. And this idea that being demeaning or hateful and, and who gets to define that and then who gets to implement policy to ameliorate people's being hurt from it, What what role does academia play in defining it? it, Do they play a role? Can they play a a more significant role? Should they be? What are your thoughts on that?
2: Well, and again, I don't know. Those are the tough questions, right? Those are the tough questions of what is hateful, what is not hateful? What is opinion? Am I allowed to have opinions that, you know, maybe go against the grain of society? I think at the end of the day, society gets to dictate Especially in democratic countries, we can vote the way we want to see American society progress or not progress, and it, but at least then it's done, you know, democratically. Mm-hmm. I'm a historian, so the the example is we look about the uh, surrounding Confederate statues and those types of things. So, do we want to erase? Um, that piece of American history and take away General Lee or Stonewall Jackson or these Confederate commanders? Or do we keep the statues up and maybe put a plaque up in front about who these people were, what they fought for and why they had these opinions and use these as a learning and a teaching teaching tool? I don't know the answer, but it certainly helps to have the dialogue and to have the conversation and get people talking about it and maybe thinking outside the box and there's I'm not saying that's the right solution but there is a solution to the confederate statues is maybe keep them up and use them as teaching tools.
0: Do you think by being a historian you kind of see that that issue in a different light because you have so much context behind who these people were and like the history of their lives and now you know we've made them into um these statues and these monuments, but you like you have a better understanding of what that really means?
2: Well, I think it's important that we keep history within the context of the time frame when it happened to put a you know our current lens on historical events from two hundred years ago or a thousand years ago. it's it's a bit dangerous. We have to look at the time period in which these events are happening and the kind of standard operating. Um, you know, context of, of what's going on. So, for example, we all think of Lincoln as this great emancipator. I love Abraham Lincoln. He's a genius. He's the best American poet ever. I mean, the Gettysburg Address or his letter to Mrs. Bixby. I mean, the, he's brilliant. He, I mean, he's a pure genius from a, a, a wordsmithing. Um, but he wasn't for equality. And he's not – he never says African-Americans and, and Europeans or Euro-Americans should have equality. And we take him out of context from what he actually was saying. He hated slavery, no question, but he was not a champion of equal rights. And actually, there's a new thing coming on on CNN about Lincoln. either airs tonight or very very soon. And they actually – I was watching the preview, and it says this. And I'm like, finally, somebody is is actually – I don't mean telling the truth, like telling the truth, but talking about these things, because we just gloss over the fact that in modern terms, he probably would be considered a racist. Um, But in the context of his existence, he is a champion for African-American rights. So it's important to look at it
1: in the context of when these people lived. So you've referenced Socrates and Homer and Kipling and, and Lincoln and now we're talking about it in the context of whatever we want to call it. I don't know if cancel culture is the right word, but whatever we want to call it. Are you worried about the literary canon as a historian? I mean, you
2: hear stories about people wanting to ban, ban books in in high schools and, you know, we can't teach uncle Tom's cabin anymore because it makes America look bad because America had African chattel slavery. And I think we learn from all avenues and all aspects and, and from a literary standpoint, I think those are people's idea. That, and you don't have to read it. If you don't want to read Uncle Tom's Cabin because you think it portrays America in a poor light, don't read it. But it doesn't. It's a piece of American history, whether we like it or not. And it's a piece with a lot of poison in it. But hopefully maybe we can educate people our, you know, culture and societies, not just America, but globally, that, you know, we can learn from the poison in our histories and every country has their poison. If I was talking about Canada, I'd mentioned some of the Canadian poison of residential schooling with our indigenous peoples, Japanese internment, like they had here in the U.S. too. We had it in Canada. So every country's got their issues. Um, it's how well you learn from your history, I think. And that's a cliche, but it is, does still hold true.
0: Well, history is made up of a, lot of a lot of flawed individuals, right? And so, of course, like we're constantly learning and growing and evolving. And so it, it makes me think um, I was reading this article a couple of days ago talking about how this c- cancel culture is, has always been around or inclusive culture, as you call it. And it, it's, not, it's, nothing, it's nothing new. It's always been there.
2: Absolutely, you think of Oscar Wilde and the torment that poor guy went through for being a uh, being homosexual. I mean, it was horrible, and he was potentially they tried to cancel him uh, because of who he chose to to love. And I mean, so yes, it has been around. For he's just the first example that kind of popped yeah. into my head was what um, was Oscar Wilde. But um, so it always definitely has been around, and and it, you see it on. Throughout, throughout history. And I know, again, the cliche, if we don't remember our history, we're doomed to repeat it. But there's a lesson in that. And that is certainly true is we have very short memories. We have very short memories about a lot of things about whether it's politics or, you know, whatever else. And I think learning again, as an individual, you hope you learn from your mistakes, right? I stuck in the fork, a fork in the toaster and that didn't go over so well. Let's not do that again. And I always think of Bart Simpson when he's trying to eat that, that, that cupcake and he keeps getting electrocuted, but he keeps going <laughs> yeah, back yeah, to it. Yeah, um, yeah like you, we need to learn as an individual from your mistakes and, and, and hopefully you know, progress to be a better individual because of your mistakes. So why can't society do that too? Um, to attain a, you know, a more perfect union, if you want to call it that.
0: I love that you keep pulling in modern-day references to to explain historical happenings. Is this something you do in your classroom often? Pull well, in? All
2: the all the time. <laughs> all the time. I went to Star Wars and Harry Potter and Game of Thrones and, you know, all the time. Uh, and even, again, in the Mosquito book, I do what I use. I, there's probably at least 20 Star Wars. Ro- there's a Star Wars well, reference on page one of the book. Like, let's be honest here. <laughs> well, um, we, uh, but it helps put it into context for students because— They can see the event in history, but then see something in their own context or their own worldview that is similar. And they can go, oh, yeah, I I get what he's saying. So, oh, yeah, I use pop culture references all the time.
1: Well, as we kind of as we wrap up up the segment, I want to return to a question I asked you. And and you were you were gracious and polite in in your answer. But I kind of want to answer it on your behalf and that. Do you know? Is there room for more practitioners, in academia, who have done both the academic side and uh, and also experienced these things? And I, I want to say, I think your students are very fortunate to have you because you're able to reference pop culture things. You're able to talk about the military in a u- unique way. You're able to coach a sport you've actually played. And I think that's really admirable. And I think we're lucky to have you here at CMU. So greatly appreciate you joining us today for the CMU Now podcast. Of course, thank you. And, and I'll just close by saying. I don't think it
2: matters. If you love your job and you're passionate about it, I think that is what's portrayed to your students. And then they're passionate too because they see how much you care and and love what you do. So it's authenticity. Um, Yeah. Yeah. And it doesn't, whether you have the experience or not, I think for a lot of jobs, that's the most important thing is you just want to be the best you can be at your job and you love what you do. And I'm so thankful that I get to come. I joke and I tell my students, I have a job where I get to come and talk about history all day, and I get paid for this. I would do this for free. Don't tell them that though. In Little Heine Hall, I wouldn't do it for free. Well, uh, and I Colin, joke can with you them, edit
1: that part out for us? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I joke
2: with them about that, but I'm blessed to have a job that I just love. I love coming to work every day. Well said.
0: Yeah, it's a, and it's a good feeling, I'm sure. you are listening to the CME Now Special Edition podcast. I'm Kelsey Coleman with my co-host, David Ludlum, and we spoke with Assistant Professor of History, Timothy Weingard. Thank you so much for coming today.
2: Of course. Thank you.